The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums are important whether we work in them, for them, or simply love visiting them. Throughout history, people have collected things and put them on display to enjoy. But today's museums offer much more than rooms filled with stuff. They provide places to learn and share experiences with family and friends, as well as sanctuaries to unplug, rest, and refresh. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums can remain relevant and sustainable, reach out to new audiences, and remain attuned to cultural and technological trends. Now, here's your host, Carol Bossert. And welcome. This is Carol Bossert, and you're listening to Museum Life, and we have a great show for you today called Joy and Justice. And uh, there has been quite a bit written in uh, both AAM uh, News, and certainly it was all over AAM talking about museums and social justice issues. And I have a great guest to help us understand what what some of those issues are and how not only can we be uh, good museum practitioners and helping our communities by raising up issues of social justice, we can do it in a joyful and uh, fun way. And so my guest with me today is a dear friend and a wonderful museum professional, Ben Garcia. Ben Garcia is currently the acting deputy director at the San Diego Museum of Man, and I know he's going to share with us a little bit of of, of that uh, wonderful institution and how he has uh, landed this job as the acting deputy director. He has been working in the museum field for more than 16 years as uh, an arts educator, museum educator, exhibit developer, and a uh, Museum Administrator. He has previously worked at the J. Paul Getty Museum and also the Skirball Cultural Center. Ben's a graduate of the Leadership in Museum Education program at Bank Street College, and he holds a B.A. in Art History from the University of Massachusetts. Many of of my listeners I know will know Ben from uh, the several many articles that he has written on the subject of museum education, including one of my favorites, which is, yes, you should go to grad school in uh, teaching in the museum, uh, museum's career in museum education, and also uh, a really wonderful uh, article in Public Value in Museum Education. So, Ben, welcome to the show today. Thanks so much, Carol. It's great to be here. 
Well, Ben, I, I really, you've had, you have had a very interesting, and I mean this very sincerely, very interesting and um, almost transforming uh, career trajectory trajectory. So I was hoping you might share with our listeners today a little bit about that trajectory and specifically what what personal and professional experiences have influenced your career most. Um, yeah, sure. Um, I started in museums at the age of 30, and I had actually spent my uh, 20s working more in the social services sector. Um, and I think one of the formative experiences for me from that period was when I worked as the director of um, arts programs for an institute called the Hunter Institute that provided professional development to people who worked with victims of violence. And um, this included social workers and police officers. And what we were doing was um, providing a creative outlet. We, you know, the belief of the Institute and, and something that I came to see and believe was the power of a creative practice to um, process violence and to counter burnout in professions where people are dealing with, with really heavy, uh, with really heavy, you know, content and with, with, with some real big social problems. And... I moved from there to my first job um, at the Getty Museum in the education department and was really interested um, in the, the Getty's approach at that point, which was uh, really about sort of finding personal connections um, with the works of art in the museum um, and really connecting visitors to those through their own experiences. and. Um, I had the great opportunity of working for uh, two different directors of education um, with two quite different approaches to to education and and two quite different ideas of what the outcomes for visitors should be in museums. And so that was a really wonderful experience in terms of um, understanding uh, sort of the power of space, you know, a space apart. Um, the Getty, you know, is this sort of sublime environment in this urban context and really provides something that I think happens more naturally um, in a more rural, rural context where you have a more direct connection to the natural world. Um, and so the Getty, you know, sort of, you know, they provide that to the city of Los Angeles. And one of the things that I think has had a real impact on me is really thinking about that sort of full environment, the way that your full self feels in a space like the Getty. Um, and that really um, has been something that I think about a lot in terms of um, museum experiences and how you can bring some of that um, in any institution, no matter the size, no matter the budget, no matter the scope. Um, going to Bank Street was one of those um, life-changing experiences because I think what Bank Street did was um, align the kind of work that I had been doing really from a place of intuition and um, instinct with the thought leaders um, in the field of education, fields of museums, who were who had created a theory and a practice around around some of the things that I thought were important. Most intentionally, this idea of 
most importantly, this idea of co-intentionality and the relationship between the teacher and the learner that is mutual and where both are teaching and where both are learning. Um, and so at Bank Street, you know, working with, you know, the fantastic folks who were there, you know, I got to work with Claudine Brown and Leslie Bedford and Laura Roberts and Bill Burback and and was introduced to the work of Lois Silverman and the Lingurian and all these folks who have been thinking about the role of museums in relationship to social betterment and social justice work. Um, and so that really was like water on dry ground for me intellectually and really shifted um, my trajectory professionally. I think, uh, you know, it was because of going to Bank Street that I was able to understand that my goals for what museums should be doing or could be doing, um, or at least the the area in museums that I would prefer to spend time in, were really related to social betterment outcomes um, in ways that, um, you know, that the Getty as a place that really thinks about that sublime experience with sort of fine works of art and really making that accessible and available doesn't, um, doesn't do in the same way as the place that I moved to, which, of course, was the Skirball Cultural Center. Um, and at the Skirball, I really found a model for um, a place that was looking at outcomes that were relational, that were about social betterment, um, and had found a way to do this really authentically and without it feeling like medicine, um, with it being really fun, with it being really engaging, particularly through the Noah's Ark at the Skirball um, Family Galleries. Um, you know, Ben, I'd like to just stop you there for for a moment, and because I do want to talk a, uh, uh, much more about your experiences at at, at Skirball, and make sure that that you know you have a chance to describe that for our listeners who have not had an opportunity to uh, see the installation. But before we do that, I think it's really important if we could just take a minute and define what we mean by social justice. Yeah, I think that's great. Um, I guess what what I mean when I'm talking about that is really finding um, finding the kind of outcomes uh, in the cultural sector in museums that relate to opening people up to one another in ways that they maybe are not before having experienced it. And so it is about, at the core, empathy. Um, I Mm -hmm. think empathy is the most valuable product of education. It's the most valuable product from my perspective of what museums um, can do. And it's really at the heart of social justice because I think if you're truly empathic, if you feel empathy toward another person, um, you are less inclined to um, do things to, to that person that sort of stop their pursuit of their own lives and happiness and health and well-being. Um, so for me, that's really what it comes down to is um, social justice work is about um, increasing empathy in society and all the many positive results of that. Thank you. That's a that's a great definition. Uh, I I appreciate that very much. Uh, I think that 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 will help the discussion a little bit more. So, uh, 
just to follow up on that, you have been part of several social justice projects at the Skirball Center. Again, my favorite is the Noah's Ark uh, exhibit. Um, I'm sure you have a a favorite as well, but could you just tell our listeners a little bit more about that project and particularly your your role in it and how it how this amazing piece developed? Well, I think uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'd be happy to. So Noah's Ark at the Skirball is the um, series of family spaces that the Skirball developed um, in the mid. 2000s opened, I think, 2006. Um, and the Skirball, up until then, has, you know, the Skirball Cultural Center has a museum, it has a public programs um, division, it has an education division, it has a, a lifelong learning division. And the Skirball was, was probably best known in Los Angeles prior to Noah's for being a venue for explorations of world um, dance, theater, music through their, through their programs. It also had um, a core gallery um, exhibition that was um, telling the story of basically the Jewish experience in America and looking at the ways that this country has been, um, has, has, been fertile ground for all kinds of groups that have come and landed here and found ways to thrive here, um, and was making connections between that and new immigrants and new communities that were coming, and, and really trying to be a place where people could think about, you know, in appreciation, um, the experiences that maybe their families had coming to this country, and then find a way of connecting that to the experiences of new immigrants who were who are a big part of Los Angeles. Um, the Scribble always aspired to be a place that really embodied these three fundamental values from Judaism, but, um, you know, more than from Judaism, that are universal values, um, but particularly articulated through Judaism as welcoming the stranger, taking care of the earth and each other, and um, transmitting gen- knowledge from one generation to the next. And while the permanent exhibition and the um, the changing exhibitions that they were doing were all geared toward that, it was really with the development of Noah's Ark at the Skirball that the Skirball Cultural Center was able to achieve a really universal um, version. They were they were truly able to um, achieve what they had aspired to do, which was to create a place where strangers don't feel strange, where you could walk in and immediately engage through a place of connection rather than walk in feeling that you needed to know something um, in order to participate. So that just sort of frames it on the, on the highest level. The experience of Noah's Ark is um, a Noah's Ark story that has neither Noah in it nor God. And so the, I think the brilliance of that process and, and that exhibition that was developed um, by a team at the Skirball, um, an exhibition developer named Marnie Gittleman, um, Sherry Bernstein, who's the VP of Education, the museum director, um, Bob Hirschner, and then the CEO, Uri uh, Hirschner, and um, his wife, um, Mina. And she's 
uh, Mina is a uh, family and child therapist. So all of them were bringing these different pieces to the table. And together with um, the designer, Alan Maskin, they were able to create um, this incredible platform where they took the Noah's Ark story, broke it down into three parts, the storm, the ark, and the rainbow, the storm representing the challenges um, in the world that we face. The ark is a solution to how you survive those by laying aside um, your traditional enemies or your traditional rivalries and working together, and then the rainbow being the hope for a new beginning. And what they were able to do was break that story down to its core elements and then find that that story had echoes in more than 200 flood narratives in cultures around the world. And so they really looked at a multicultural approach and hired a folklorist to create seven narratives from different cultures around the world. And those are the narratives that are uh, interpreted throughout the exhibit by storytellers and puppeteers. Um, and they just created this very rich environment with not much interpretation um, in terms of writing um, or, or labels, but that was, uh, that was an environment that was designed to get people to work together, people of different ages and different sizes to work together. They, um, they created a space for children and families that looked quite different from most, I think, spaces in children's museums to that point uh, in that they really had an emphasis on um, using repurposed materials, creating the more than 300 animals on the ark from, you know, cast off parts of tractors or violin cases or old leather gloves, um, and also using uh, sustainably harvest natural materials wherever they could. So really moving away from the fiberglass or the plastic um, kinds of constructions that are considered durable and appropriate for many kids' museums, and really embracing wood and other natural materials as the primary, as the, as the primary materials of the space. Um, so it's, a, it's this wonderful family um, gallery experience that um, underscores those messages from the Noah's Ark story in a universal way, and then also really um, works to help people um, think about resources on the planet and, um, you know, through their emphasis on repurposed and recycled materials um, that are both in the gallery and in the hands-on activities, um, the Skirball is really able to do this social betterment work, you know, sort of deliver these messages in a way that is so completely um, embodied in the fun and the joy of the experience that um, it's really sort of the finest example of that integration that, that I've ever, you know, been a part of. Yeah, I, I think I, I too, I, I, I have, I just think it's a magical experience. And, uh, we're going to stop right here, uh, and take a very quick break. And when we come back, we are going to continue a great conversation with Ben Garcia, uh, looking more at the issues of, uh, social justice in museums and how that can be fun. Again, you're listening to Museum Life. Remember, you can always reach me at carol.bob at verizon.net let me know what museum issues you think we should be talking about on the show we will be back in just a moment 
talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. News, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787, 1-866-472-5787, voiceamerica.com. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert. You're listening to Museum Life, and I'm here with Ben Garcia. And right before we went to break, he was giving us this fantastic description of the Noah's Ark project at the Skirball Cultural Center in uh, Los Angeles. If you have, if you ever get to Los Angeles, take the extra time and see this marvelous installation. And um, so, Ben, I was was uh, reading some of the things uh, that. Uh, that you've written, I follow your your work. I think you're you just have so many good things to say. And uh, one of the the uh, blogs that you recently uh, wrote on Carol Scott's website, uh, you ask, well, can public value and social justice be fun? So what what's the answer? And and frankly, why did you ask the question? <laughs> um, I think you know the answer. Uh, ties into what I was describing with Noah's Ark, which is that I think absolutely public value work, social justice work, can be infused with those qualities of joyfulness and and fun that um, I think will make a difference in terms of reaching people who are not necessarily convinced either of the issue at hand or of that role for museums, whether museums should even be doing this work. Um, generating public value is to the public sector, including the cultural sector, what profit is to the private sector. And so anyone who is 
does not have, you know, any entity that doesn't have profit as an outcome is generating instead public value, which is sort of the basis of the theory that Mark Moore developed in the, in the 90s. Um, applying that to museums really lets us think about um, the role of the public in generating public value alongside the museum. And, you know, I think when we get to the question of fun, I see so many people who are working, doing incredibly thoughtful, sincere work um, in the areas of social justice and public value with museums. And I'm hoping that we can shift, you know, that we can shift a bit this sense that, um, you know, I was talking about empathy earlier, and I think, you know, empathy as what I see as the greatest outcome for learning and for potentially the work of museums is not a term that I imagine most people associate with fun, um, nor is social justice necessarily or social value or public value. And I'm really hoping that maybe we can shift that a little bit. I'm trying to shift that a bit in the way that I present um, these ideas in the world. Um, so in that post that for Carol Scott, I was really picking at the edges of something that I've been thinking about these days and that I'm hoping to explore moving forward, um, which is how those of us who are committed to social justice work and public value outcomes in our work can add playfulness and joyfulness and fun to the earnestness and the sincerity. And I think sometimes the preachiness or the slight high horsedness um, of the discourse and the practice in these areas. Um, I just think that, you know, I, what I found, you know, in writing uh, for Carol's um, collection or, uh, of essays for her book about public values in the museum is that I sort of shift my tone. I was just noticing in myself that, you know, I'm someone who my friends and my colleagues know to be quite a lively and playful and, you know, jokey person. Um, but when I was writing about public value and museum education, I took on this very serious tone. And I think that gets reflected both in terms of the discourse and the writing about these ideas. Um, and it also gets translated then into the museum experiences in many museums that are trying to take this on. And so, um, you know, I'm really interested in thinking about how fun, which is such, you know, an odd term um, and can be related to so many things, but it's essentially a marker for an emotional state or an affective state that will draw people who are not necessarily convinced um, or not necessarily interested in, a, in uh, entering a museum in order to explore a more serious or a more earnest or a more um, urgent kind of topic in terms of sort of social, in terms of social ills or social good. You know, Ben, what, what that reminds me of uh, is, is the, uh, the use of humor uh, and many comedians uh, being interviewed 
often say that you know they they are very they have very serious uh, uh, thoughts about the world around them. They have very serious concerns, but the humor is often a way of getting people to almost laugh at themselves, or at least in a more subtle way uh, realize that uh, you know, perhaps some of their views need need to be reconsidered. Uh, and so I think that that's that sounds to me as if that's that's also part of what what you're what you're saying is that uh that these topics are very serious but we can we can lighten up a little bit <laughs> right yeah i think you know if you know i know for myself if i could approach this as a, in a more integrated way where i'm not sort of or where i don't have sort of just this earnest and sincere approach and tone, you know, when doing this social justice work or public value work in the museum. And then, you know, on my lunch break, go out with a colleague and have sort of a rollicking good time. If there's a way to sort of bring some of that together, um, I really think that is the challenge for museums that are trying to make a difference around issues that people are not necessarily naturally drawn to or comfortable um, being public about. And so, you know, that's very much what I'm thinking about in my new role here at the Museum of Man. And, you know, part of why I'm excited to be here is because the CEO, Micah Parzen, and um, the leadership team and, and all of the staff really are trying to figure out what that mix is, how you, how you sustain a public how you draw visitors, in this case, in a tourist destination. So it's especially true when you're talking about families on vacation or people on vacation. You know, how do you draw them into a museum to look at serious questions, important questions, um, in a way that will feel compelling to, to them when, you know, in this particular instance, we're in Balboa Park where there are, you know, I should know exactly how many, but at least 11 other museums in the park that they could go to. Um, And so, you know, what I love about being at the Museum of Man is that this is really a place where the market determines your audience. And having public value or social justice outcomes um, sort of survive the market is, I think, going to be... Uh, you know, I think that's really an important test of this, of whether we're really reaching people who are not already people who who would be interested or convinced by the kinds of things we're talking about. You know, that's a very that is an incredibly good good point uh, that that you've made. That people um, uh, we've talked about, you know, museums as being places of free choice learning, and with the emphasis on free choice. And uh, if you, particularly if you have lots of different opportunities, uh, what, where are you going to be making those decisions? And maybe you're not, uh, particularly if you're with your family, you're not going to go for the thing that is the downer, but you might go to the thing that you feel is more, more fun and, and engaging. But I, I'm struck too by what you had said earlier 
uh, in the skirball, which, which is this tenant of being welcoming that uh, you said, you know, strangers don't feel strange. And I'm wondering if that is also the tenant that, that we need to be uh, really holding holding true to on these uh, topics of social justice. We don't want I mean, if, if someone comes to your home, you don't automatically make them feel bad and guilty. You, <laughs> you might offer them a drink um, or a seat or uh, something that is pleasurable before perhaps you get into more uh, serious discussion of, of, of the day. Yeah, no, I think that's true. And, you know, that idea of the stranger not feeling strange, that really came directly from Uri Hersher, who's the CEO of the Skirball. And, you know, interestingly, it doesn't have a museum background. He was, um, you know, the, he, he, he was a, a rabbi and he was the, you know, either the dean or the president of, I should know, Hebrew Union College in Los Angeles before um, founding the Skirball Cultural Center. And what he, his experience was that museums generally, at that point, he experienced them as places that separated people, where you, where you walked in and there was an unspoken assumption that there was some piece of knowledge you were bringing in that would either sort of let you feel like you were part of it or not. And he really wanted to make sure when he created the skirball that this was this place was a tent of welcome. And I think you're right. In terms of this, you know, fun is not it's sort of a clumsy word, but in terms of having a place that feels fun, you first have to feel welcome. You have to feel like you can walk in there and people will be glad to see you and 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 that there's a place there for you. Um so yeah, I think that you know, I think I think that's absolutely that's absolutely true. Well, you know what what's interesting is also going back to you to some of the uh observations you made about uh the skirt the the skirball not being like a traditional uh, children's museum. Uh, on the one hand, children's museums are so very effective because they're so uh, comfortable. Uh, you know, it's a fire engine. Every mm-hmm. kid, you know, every child knows that it's a fire engine because they've seen fire engines in their neighborhoods or in books. Uh, so, so again, it's that uh, it's almost rewarding. Uh, them to say yes, and there's a fire engine here, and you can you can uh, you know explore it a little bit more than you can in a book, or certainly uh, seeing one walk uh, rush down the street. And you know, I never really thought about it before, but that part of the children's museum that you know sometimes we brush off as saying, oh, well, this is just for fun, maybe we need to be taking that statement a little more seriously, is what mm-hmm. I'm gathering from what mm-hmm. you're saying. Yeah, yeah, I think um, I think that's absolutely, uh, you know, I mean, I, I love, you know, this is sort of opening up that thought for me that maybe this really is a lot about that threshold experience and um, that that social justice sort of payload, if you will, um, will really be effectively delivered if, you know, that threshold experience is one that is familiar, warm, welcoming. And I think, you know, that's sort of the basis of of what a lot of people who are who are thinking about the visitor experience, you know, I think that sort of would sort of sum up, 
um, a, a lot of current thinking on this on this idea. Um, and it's interesting sort of to think about how it applies particularly when the content is um, is related to sort of social betterment outcomes, public value outcomes, you know, social justice outcomes. Um, you know, we're really thinking here at, you know, at the Museum of Man about that mix. And the Museum of Man is, it, it aspires to take on important topics and to take on hot topics and topics that really are of uh, you know, of relevance to the communities. And so, you know, they're looking, some of the current things that are going on, they have a, an exhibit um, called Instruments of Torture that was created in conjunction with uh, the, jo- the Joan Crock Institute for Peace locally and um, Survivors of Torture International, a local organization that, that helps survivors of torture um, through mental health, services and, you know, relocation services. And, you know, that's a very heavy topic and one that has real relevance uh, in terms of U.S. policy abroad today, in terms of the fact that in San Diego Diego County alone, there are estimated to be about 11,000 people who survived torture living here. Um, you know, there's that topic, or or we're developing a program called Border Crossing, which is modeled on the Connor Prairie Follow the North Star Living Theater program, um, and it will be a program where where visitors can embody some of the experience of crossing the border here in Southern California illegally, and um, you know, it's being developed by a by a playwright. Um, and using the stories of real, um, you know, migrants who who came and crossed the border illegally, and and you know, I mean, again, that's that's a very important and and also a very heavy topic. Um, and so we really have to figure out how do you tell those stories in a locate in a tourist location in a way that will really um, compel visitors to come in and. I think, you know, what the museum has done over the past few years is try to do a mix of topics so that, you know, they also have this really lovely exhibit called Bureology, um, which looks at the cross-cultural, multicultural, and historic experience of brewing beer um, using artifacts from the collections and um, is associated with a really uh, robust program of, you know, local breweries coming and doing beer tastings and, um, you know, a lot of fun, frankly. Um, Well, I think let's stop right there with beer for a moment. Uh, We are going to have to take another uh, short break. And uh, when we come back, we're going to continue to talk with Ben Garcia as we, we both find our way today in social joy and social justice. We will be back in just a moment. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. 
Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. News, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787, 1-866-472-5787, voiceamerica.com. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bosser at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life, and as you know, I'm here with Ben Garcia, and uh, we've been really wrestling with this, the uh, importance of making sure that our social justice topics and the way we present them in museums aren't uh, so preachy and uh, such downers that no one really wants to uh, come in and hear, hear uh, what we have to say or make their own um, make their own um, experiences and, and connections come alive. And I, I, I know Ben is going to continue with his research in this area and thinking in this area. Uh, but I'd like to shift gears just a little bit and uh, hear a little bit more about the Museum of uh, Man. You know, I know it's an, it's an anthropology museum, and I've got to tell you, whenever I think of anthropology, I always think of Margaret Mead, um, you know, and, and her work with those, those Samoan girls on, on remote desert islands. And I know that that's just showing my, my uh, exposing my, my own ignorance and probably biases. But, you know... I really, I, I struggle with finding, you know, what's the relevance of, of anthropology to us today, and uh, particularly those that live in urban areas, you know, like Balboa Park. So mm-hmm. I know you're struggling with this, this topic as well, so I'd love for you to, uh, to, to give me some insights here. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that I think you're not alone in having um, that kind of association. I think many people have similar associations and um, and really see the discipline of, anth- of anthropology as sort of the study of the other, um, and in that way, as sort of divisive, maybe. Um, or objectifying, um, or you know, outdated potentially. But but you know, contemporary anthropology 
I really, I fully believe that, that anthropology is the quintessential discipline for the 21st century. Um, as the world gets smaller and our lives change drastically, very quickly due to advances in technology and in the ways that we communicate, uh, I think anthropology really both provides ways to connect cross-culturally um, in a smaller world with empathy, with openness, and it preserves the diversity of culture that is challenged through this shrinking planet, um, through sort of the homogenization of culture and, you know, the sort of international reach of cultural experiences now. I think anthropology both sort of conserves diversity and provides us with ways of really opening to each other. Um, you know, I worked previous to the Museum of Man, I worked at the CBA Hearst Museum of Anthropology at UC Berkeley, and we were thinking there about many of the same things. You know, these are two anthropological museums in California, both of which have a history that's 100 years or more. Um, they were there sort of in the early part of the discipline, which really was about, I think, you know, the best intentions of the time, about cataloging and preserving cultures that were seen as dying cultures. Um, and, of course, all done in the way that much museum work was done from this sort of <laughs> imperialist, colonialist, um, sort of white, you know, European, European-American sort of privileged place. And many of the critiques of anthropology and, and of sort of historic museology are, are, you know, certainly valid, but the contemporary experience of it, the contemporary field, is really about both looking critically at that past and, you know, thinking about what does a discipline that sort of is an intersection of, you know, art, science, history, um, you know, and sort of social, you know, sociology, you know, that, that really is a powerful mix there. And I think in terms of museums telling stories or finding ways to connect with issues, um, from a multidisciplinary way, in, in a multidisciplinary way, anthropology provides you with that natural with that natural platform. Um, and so, you know, we were definitely looking at that at the Hearst, and we're looking at that um, as I'm here at the Museum of Man. Um, and I think that shifting, you know, I think <laughs> shifting the perception of what anthropology is. You know, I mean, you've got. You know, with the Museum of Man right off the bat, you have one of those sort of historic museum names that used to really signify something. Museum of Man meant something to people back when it was named that. Um, and today, um, it probably doesn't. You know, I think, you know, we have, you know, we're about to hire a full-time uh, staff research associate um, to do audience research, and I'm going to be very interested to hear what people expect they might encounter at a museum called the Museum of Man, because I think that is just, you know, a term like anthropology that is sort of out of public usage currently. Um, but at the heart, I think these collections, which are multicultural and focus on the way that people live and the way that people communicate and the way that people figure out those sort of fundamental questions and challenges, um, those collections are incredibly potent 
um, and really um, can serve as um, powerful platforms for looking at all those same questions that we're dealing with today. And, uh, well, thank you. Um, I, you know, other than the, the lovely alliteration of Museum of Man, I, you know, I think it's a tough sell. Uh, and, and I, too, will be very interested in, uh, in, in your, your audience evaluation. I mean, you were, you were talking a, a bit before about, you know, clearly how you're using some of the museum collections by looking at, at, at beer brewing uh, through the ages. I mean, certainly that, that does have an art and science and uh, and cultural component to it, so I can understand why you're saying that anthropology is the uh, the essentially the quintessential um, uh, study for us these days because it does start to break down those silos uh, yeah. and make those connections across disciplines that I know many museums strive to do, but sometimes it can be very very challenging uh, to do. Could you just uh, maybe talk a couple more minutes uh, for us about one of the projects that that you told me about uh, before that you're working on with uh, monsters? Oh, yeah. So, you know, I think, uh, you know, as I was describing before, some of the strategy at the Museum of Man has been to sort of have some topics that were heavier and some that were lighter and sort of finding the fun and, you know, people can sort of go back and forth or maybe they come in for biology or they come in... um, you know, for one of the sort of lighter-hearted topics, and then they, you know, stay for, um, you know, for something that's a little, uh, a little deeper, a little more challenging. Um, I think really the way that we want to move, and and we're all in agreement here, is to a more integrated approach where you still will have some mix of sort of the light and the dark, the heavy and the and the and the more light-hearted, but really looking at sort of how can you create exhibits that do sort of both, um, where it's not like me going from one voice when writing about public value to another voice, you know, when talking with my colleagues. How can we, you know, create exhibits that that have this um, important social value payload but also um, are sort of fully embodied in a way that is fun or exciting or, you know, or, or, or joyful at times. Um, and I think the Monsters exhibit that you're referencing is, is, um, uh, our, is I guess, probably our first um, experiment with this since I've come on board. And we're doing an exhibit that will look sort of cross-culturally at monsters. And again, you know, one of the really rich veins in anthropology, of course, is folklore and the related fields of mythology and, you know, sort of narrative generally. Um, And looking at sort of these monsters that are universal types that show up in unconnected cultures and so seem to be connected to sort of, uh, you know, sort of the kinds of things that Joseph Campbell and um, Carl Jung talk about in terms of a collective unconscious and, and these archetypes that that are shared across cultures and, and places. Um, and, and with this exhibit, we're really sort of trying to look both at um, those universal ideas and enjoy the diversity of the ways that they get expressed in different cultures, whether that's Peru or Scotland or um, China, wherever it might be. Um, we're also really looking at an exhibit that is about empowering children around fear. 
and making sure that there are lots of opportunities to think about um, how you don't shut down in the face of fear, but, you know, you find ways to protect yourselves and that whole idea of amulets and protections and, and ways of sort of uh, empowering yourself in the face of those monsters that, you know, that might scare you. Um, so we're well, really... I- tr- Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I, well, I was just, I was going to ask you um, when it when is it going to open because I I'll, I'll make a special trip. Oh, good. Yeah, it's slated to open. Um, it's slated to open October twenty fifth, just in time for Halloween, and it's a you know it's a small it's it's going to be a small exhibit. Um, it's only about um, fifteen hundred square feet, but it's going to have you know, hopefully a big impact, and we are certainly, um, you know, packing it full of, of interactives, and um, it's really going to be a wonderful step forward for us, both in terms of having an exhibit experience that is really immersive, um, and also in terms of, again, trying to find that balance between some, you know, some some important ideas around uh, multiculturalism and around, um, uh, you know, sort of empowerment of, of young people um, mixed with just sort of the fun of a really creative space where you can explore, where you can explore monsters. Well, I, I think I, as I said, I think that that's really, really uh, great and interesting and, and, and a particularly good example. Uh, I'm even more convinced now about the importance of anthropology and how that can be used to uh, to bring, you know, sort of tease out those, you know, universal truths mm-hmm. uh, that, that seem to bind us uh, across, across cultures. We've got uh, a few minutes left, and I don't want to leave this interview without giving you an opportunity to talk about another project that's near and dear to your heart, and that is the Adoption Museum project. Yeah, great. Thank you so much. Um, the, um, this is a really uh, wonderful uh, project and a relationship that I've developed over the past couple of years with the founding director, Laura Cowan, who's based up in the Bay Area, and who came to me, um, you know, also not coming from a museum background. Um, it's interesting. I find myself working with people who come to the field from other areas, really are drawn to the power of museums, but in some ways, because they haven't come up through museums, um, have have some real flexibility in their minds, sort of conceptually, about what a museum can and cannot do. Um, and Laura, um, as an adopted person, really has felt for years that sort of the sort of equivalent of a culturally specific museum um, around the question of adoption um, would be sort of powerful and of great value um, in this country. Uh, I think, you know, 60% of Americans um, know someone uh, either in their family or have a, have a, have a friend who um, has a connection to adoption. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big part of our culture and our society, and yet many people still sort of see it through sort of a 19th century view, <laughs> with, sort of a, with sort of 19th century ideas. And so this Adoption Museum project is really the first phase on the way to what will hopefully be an adoption museum. Um, and it is, um, it's, 
It started up, um, I think it's been about just over a year now since it's had a nonprofit status. Um, at this point, uh, we've done one exhibit, uh, sort of a pop-up exhibit in San Francisco, and we're working now um, with two venues. One is the Skirball Cultural Center on a family program at Noah's Ark related to adoption. Um, and then the other is on an exhibit that we're co-developing with the Presidio Trust for their new um, renovated officers club at the Presidio, which is going to be a place to interpret the history of the Presidio. And so um, they contracted the Adoption Museum Project to co-curate an exhibit on a historical event called Operation Baby Lift, which was a mass adoption of Vietnamese children by Americans that happened at the end of the Vietnam War and that was processed through the Presidio. And so... Um, you know, this is a, you know, it's a really wonderful partnership. That exhibit's going to open next April. And um, Laura is just um, working with the Presidio in this wonderful sort of co-intentional way where they've, um, they're really working closely with people on all sides of this um, of this event, people who were at the Presidio um, as staff, people who were adoptees, um, you know, adoptive parents. Well, that um, sounds just so, so very important. Ben, I'm going to have to cut you short, and that means that, that you'll have to come back on the show and tell us more about this very important project. Uh, it has been just a delight to have you on the show today. You have raised so many important issues with me, and I think it's going to trend transform my thinking as well. Uh, thank you so very much, Ben. Well, thank you so much for having me, Carol. You take care. Okay, and we will be back next week with another great show uh, on Museum Life, so please tune in. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. We'll see you next week. Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What museum issue is on your mind? Tell Carol at carol.bossert at verizon.net.